On this episode of IT Visionaries, a couple of members of the ISIX team gathered around the table for a discussion about how they are helping to bring blockchain to the enterprise. Joining the discussion are Matt Cromar, the Vice President of Product, and Elliot Yama, Vice President of Marketing, both of whom have long histories in the tech industry and have been working with Salesforce to create a blockchain platform that is built for the enterprise. They discuss some of the challenges and advantages of moving to the blockchain, and they also get into what other exciting things are happening at ISICS. Enjoy the interview. This podcast is sponsored by Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have two special guests in studio today. First, Matt, what's going on? Ian, it's going great. I'm really glad to be here in this awesome, this is probably one of the best garages that I've ever been in. Indeed, the garage studio uh, with our myriad of amazing guests, just like Elliot. What's going on? Going great. Thanks for being here. All right. So we are going to get into all things i6 today. We're going to talk about a bunch of enterprise blockchain. We're going to talk about trust. But first, I want to get a little bit on both of your backgrounds. Uh, We'll start with you, Matt. How'd you get into technology? Well, that's a good question. Actually, uh, when I was 15 years old, I was working as a courtesy clerk or what we used to call a bag boy in a grocery store up in Mill Valley, California. I don't know courtesy clerk. I know bag boy. Yeah. Yeah. Courtesy clerk is, I think, the more PC term these days. But uh, one of the jobs that we had there was to basically restock the beverage containers, Um, you know, the Crystal Geyser and the Coca-Cola and the Pepsi. And so when I got my first introduction to this uh, guy ripped off a piece of a cardboard box and handed me a pen and told me to go basically through the the shelf and write down what was missing and how many of each one I needed and then go in the back and find all the stuff and bring it out to the uh, to the case and pack it all in the case. I did that once and I realized that uh, that was not really an efficient way to to do that. Um, And so I went home and booted up my Mac Classic with my floppy disk drive and then loaded up my Microsoft Excel, I think 1.0 spreadsheet and I wrote down after work that day, every single thing that was in that um, beverage container. And then I put them all on a spreadsheet. I put in all the uh, different types of uh, case sizes, quantities, et cetera, as, uh, as different columns uh, in the spreadsheet. And I printed it all out and I went back the next day and I went to the owner of the market and I told him, hey, could we try this? And uh, that's how I kind of got my start. And, and as a side note, about eight years later, uh, I came home from college one summer to work and uh, went into that market. And lo and behold, there was a courtesy clerk with a spreadsheet on a clipboard going through and stocking that shelf. And they probably have an iPad now. They probably have an iPad now or maybe Google Glass. Who knows? Yeah, that's great. Elliot, what about you? Right. Uh, So I was a box boy, (laughs) called a box boy, but that's not how I got into technology. Um, I was a business consultant. And I worked with organizations, uh, corporations around a set of business processes. But um, one of the things I was focused on was helping those organizations develop capabilities to to define strategy and execute strategy. And so for me, I could see the importance of enterprise tools. Um, specifically, it was around pricing strategy, so not not too wonky. But uh, with the rise of, of enterprise tools for pricing strategy, um, that's really kind of how I got into IT. And so this is... Uh, this is kind of the, the the path that I've been on. So working with machine learning and AI and things like that. And and you had a pretty good stint recently at, at Aptus, which, um, you know, is obviously been at the forefront of, of quote to cash and all things. That's pretty, it had to be a pretty exciting time for there for five years. Absolutely. Aptus was a pretty amazing journey. So um, growing 100% year over year um, uh, based on the force.com platform. Um, and and managing um, two tools that business users used for a kind of a range of business processes from from quoting to contract management to order fulfillment and invoicing. And so um, spent a lot of time working there to create artificial intelligence machine learning solutions that would actually power power those those tools and help users be more efficient, more effective. 
was funny is I felt like you knew, like the public knew about the growth because every year the Dreamforce booth got bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> like I remember the first one and then like to, to recently. Um, so for listeners who might not know, what is ISICS and why is it kind of leading the charge for transparency in blockchain? Well, that's a good question. Um, really what we are at our core is what we call a business network. And, and actually I got my start and basically have made it my life's work to build business networks since I started uh, back at Ariba in about 1999. And at that time, Ariba was focused on building out procurement applications for big companies to use to help save money on the stuff they buy that's around the office, the stuff that's in this room. And we decided that we needed to build a what ultimately became a business network because we wanted to improve the efficiency with which these people that buy this stuff connect with their training partners. Um, and so we built out a business network. And if you look at what is a business network, it really is very similar. I like to draw the parallel today with what a social network is. A business network needs, first of all and foremost, to have a directory. And you can think of a directory and a social network, just like your list of friends, the people that are out there, you know that Ian is Ian, you know that Matt is Matt, and there's some level of trust in that network, right? You're so assuming I have a lot of friends. I'm assuming you'll have a lot of friends. <laughs> so that, that directory is kind of the key component there. And then secondly, um, you've got to have content, right? So on Facebook, your content is your posts, it's your pictures, maybe on LinkedIn, it's the same kind of stuff. Uh, maybe your, your credentials um, about who you are. Um, those things are, are necessary in a business network for figuring out what do I want to buy from this co uh, company or what is the policy that my supplier has about, you know, using um, um, certain fair trade coffee or other fair trade items in their supply chain. And then finally, you've got to have um, transactions. And if you look at what the parallel for transactions in a social network would be things like what are my rules about who can see my posts, what my privacy settings are, things like that. In the business side, it would be things like, um, how are my purchase orders delivered to my suppliers? How are the invoices come back to me as a supply, as a, as a, a buyer of those things? So I've made kind of my life's work around building out these business networks. And the Ariba solution was, was very successful. Um, I worked there for three times over the last 20 years. So they kind of, kind of feel like the godfather, right? They kept pulling me back in. <laughs> but each time I went there, we kind of got to build some new innovation stuff. Um, but that business network is certainly the, the piece that SAP thought was valuable um, when they acquired Ariba in, in 2012 um, for I think about four and a half billion dollars. Yeah, no kidding. So that was a, a good move. And, and so what ISIX is doing is, is similar in parallel to that business network approach, but we're, we're gonna let Ariba keep going with the, the orders and the invoices. That's the transactional data that they flow between the buyers and the sellers and other parties. We're really interested at ISIX in the all the other things that you need to share with your training partners mm -hmm. right kind of like how do i build trust with my training partners i need to know that you're a good guy and how do i know that well you supply me documentation so that documentation could be something like my tax id or my 1099 forms it could be you know a statement um, or a certification from a lab that's inspected one of my facilities where i make stuff for you that says this is you know there's no children working here there's a clean bathroom, the ex exit doors aren't bolted shut, right? That's all stuff that could be verified by a third party. And so what ISICS does, and we specifically now do this on the Salesforce platform, is we connect large retailers and large brands throughout their entire supply chain so that they can collect this information. And we do it in an efficient way on the Salesforce platform that allows you to request this information from your trading partners and then watch and monitor the status of those requests and get those responses, right? And what we've found is in the past, many companies, their solution to this is Excel and email, right? It's the old fashioned world's database, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and so what we've done is positioned our old platform, which has been around since about 2005 over the last three years, over to the Salesforce platform. Um, which obviously is great because we don't have to, you know, host servers and buy databases and things like that. We can just write one check to Salesforce and we've got the trust built into that, um, all the audit requirements and backups and things like that. But that that essentially is what we do is build out that business network, connect those trading partners and then conduct all the, the business of, of you know, building trust 
Uh, and I'm sure Elliot would love to add add a little bit on that too. Yeah. So if you think if you think about automating those data exchanges <clears throat> between the trading partners and and that consumer goods company, um, that creates a great deal of efficiency simply because now you can get to market faster. But the other thing that's important about it is that today's consumer, the modern consumer, needs that information. Right? <clears throat> they shop for that information. Uh, they look for that verification, that trust, and they align with the companies that are aligned with their values. Yeah. I think, you know, if only there was some sort of distributed ledger that you could, uh, <laughs> you know, track in real time exactly exactly what is going on. And uh, that is, you know, foolproof and uh, nobody owns. Yeah, if only somebody created something like that, right? That would be a magical world. Yeah, indeed. right. Someone should write a, write a white paper on it. So how does blockchain play into this? Well, I think the jury's still out. We've been operating under kind of some of the design principles around blockchain since our inception, right? We know that we got the right training partner connected uh, into our solution with the, the large retailer or the large brand of one of our customers. We know who the labs are and they've got verified logins to our system. So we've got kind of all the actors being authenticated on our system and we, we can see and audit the interactions between those, those parties. Um, where we're starting to see some interest in applying some of the blockchain technology is around um, additional parties that may have interest in that information. We, we operate on kind of what we call first, second, and third party data in our system. So first party data is all the information that I have in my information systems about my company and my products and my training partners. So it might be my product descriptions, images, things like that. Second party data is information I have about my training partners, right? So it might be like their DUNS number, or it may be some you know document that they've signed that says that they don't produce cotton from Uzbekistan mm -hmm. because Uzbekistan is a place where there's uh, evidence of child labor being used in, Got it. in that supply chain, right? So that's kind of some second party data that I could gather and say, okay, good. These guys are good. They're not on my naughty list. And then third party data is what we get from what we call verifiers. These are labs. These are United Labs, any piece of electronic equipment that you pick up, it'll usually say inspected by UL or SGS or ITS. These different labs are basically the 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 pioneers out there and doing the inspections to basically verify that I said I don't have Uzbeki cotton. How do I know that? Well, actually, they could do DNA testing on the cotton, mm -hmm. pulling it off the shelf, and they can go and say this cotton is coming from place that you shouldn't be buying it from. So that's the um, that's an area of interest is is now bringing in additional parties that might be interested in that data. We've got the first, second, and third party covered. Where we see information uh, being wanting to be accessible to is for the government agencies. So the Consumer Product Safety Division, the FDA for food, they all want to be part of the party, right? So the idea is, do we give them logins to be able to be part of our system and in our workflows? Or do we make just the right amount of information available to them so that they get what they need, but they don't necessarily need to know that what price I get my cotton for, right? Things yeah, like that. Totally. Um, the other end of the spectrum is you and me. And Elliot's got some data to back this up. I want to go into a store. I want to be able to scan a barcode or a, or a, um, a bit code and see that where my stuff came from. And so the consumer now wants to be a participant in this information chain that we've developed, this business network that we developed. Now, do we want to give them an org and have them log into their Salesforce account to be able to see uh, where all their stuff comes from? I'm sure Salesforce would love that. That would be a great world and we'll get there someday. But for right now, we think blockchain is a great way to disseminate, pull the pieces out that the consumer cares about and make that stuff available externally to the system and use blockchain as a way to build trust. Yeah. When you think about kind of uh, the millennial generation, right, as consumers, they have forced corporations to be accountable, right, for, for the things that they do. But Gen Z, they're looking for proof. Show it to me. And so that's where uh, we see potential for blockchain and supply chain is that it the ability to actually deliver that information, that third party verified information. Yeah, I mean, with all the products with like social impact and social good and things like that, um, you know, as a marketer, it's uh, it's there's a lot of things that you can put in your marketing copy that you don't actually fulfill on the back end. A lot of promises that you can make, and I think that you know, to your point, the fact that we you know, have 
this technology that we can use, that we can use blockchain to determine if that stuff is actually happening is super powerful. But also at some point in the distant future, it'll be table stakes. Like you, you'll have to be able to do it. Absolutely. So, so uh, saw some, saw some information uh, last week at the Consumer Goods Forum Executive Summit. So 83% of kind of corporations believe that they are doing an adequate job of being transparent about their sustainability initiatives. When you look at, when you ask that same question to uh, Generation Z consumers, less than half, only 41% think that those companies are doing an adequate job. So they're, they're demanding that information. They're saying, prove it. And if, and, and the consequences are high for those consumer goods companies, because if you can't, then, then you're going to lose those consumers. Let's talk through some industry use cases, because I think, especially with supply chains, it's like inherently something that most consumers know nothing about. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that like, you know, we, when we get the, you know, Hanes t-shirt or whatever, the tagless or the, uh, what's it? The, the Michael Jordan used to do the like uh, bacon neck tea. You know, yeah, yeah. I remember those commercials. Um, when we get the t-shirt, we like, we don't know the entire supply chain. The fact that in the future we actually could is, is mind blowing, but walk us through some of the type of customers um, like a Hanes or a Walmart that do things like quality control, practice social responsibility uh, and use I6 to do that. Wow, this is a great a great use case to talk about. So um, none of us really have the full understanding of a, what it takes to make a, a hoodie, right? We all throw a hoodie on and we zip it up or we pull it over and tighten the drawstrings and we go off and do our business. Um, but it's amazing to learn all the steps that go into producing that hoodie and specifically around the product testing requirements for these companies is mm-hmm. absolutely mind-blowing. So we've spent a lot of time with Hanes as a customer. They've been a customer of ours for a long, long time. They have brands like uh, Champion, um, global brands now that they've acquired. And um, if you look at what types of tests there are, there's really kind of two key areas. One is what we call regulatory. These are basically government mandated tests that you have to perform on all your products in certain areas to make sure that they're safe. And you've got to have documentation for those tests as well. And those, if you're the, those items are made outside the country, they can't even make it past customs unless that documentation is available readily for um, for the government inspectors. Second types of tests are really the company's quality standards, right? You know, we can make a cheap T-shirt where it's got a logo on it, and you wash it the first time, and the logo is gone, right? That's really bad, and is not kind of the quality standards that those companies want to have. So what ISIX does is we help those companies build out their testing programs, execute those testing programs, whether they're making those things internally or they're using a third-party contract manufacturer, like a lot of companies do, um, that those tests are properly executed throughout each stage of the manufacturing process, all the way from the bale of cotton being dropped off at the spinner to be spun up into yarn Um, and then all the way through the printing and the sewing process. So there are a couple of key things that you may not know. The tags or the ink that's printed on that logo needs to be tested for lead because lead is deemed uh, unsafe in certain quantities, specifically for children. If you've got a hoodie with a drawstring on it, that has the potential to choke someone specifically interested is in children. So there are specific tests around not only the drawstring itself, but then the little thing at the end of the drawstring, is that a choking hazard, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about one specific garment, then those are the kind of the regulatory tests, but then you think about the quality test, which is, okay, I wash it 10 times. How much does the logo fade? Is that acceptable for me, right? Or if I test a failure, if I pull the drawstrings or zip up the zipper 30 times, you know, when is at what point is it gonna fail? So those would be the quality tests that a company like Haynes would be interested in. So if you add all this stuff up, it comes out to just a tremendous amount of effort that goes into not just I'm making a T-shirt, but if I'm making five different colors of T-shirt, each one of those colors has to be tested because the dye could be different, right? The colors could be different. If I have different logos, the little tag that they now print on most T-shirts in the back, that has to be tested for lead. So all these things are kind of an easy or, well, first of all, most of us don't know that happens with the products that we get. But it's not an easy process to track. It's a really hard process to track. And our system helps you to not only initiate those requests to capture that data, 
but then also it lets the labs and the verifiers verify that data so that you can avoid primarily you're going to want to avoid regulatory problems um i know of a company last fall that had some products where they didn't actually have the proper documentation on the testing protocols that were done on those products those products may have been tested but at the time that the company sold those products they didn't have the what we call gcc's for those products the global compliance certificates or certificates of conformance someone got hurt with one of those products three and a half million dollars later yeah you know that company's looking back and saying wow we we maybe we should really do a better job you know of capturing this information and verifying that we have it so that's a simple to understand use case of how our software helps to to initiate those requests for that information track it and then make sure that it's there one other area that that we do is um, because we're able to capture all those um, uh, all the information that's needed to generate those certificates of compliance we can actually eliminate a lot of paper in the supply chain if you think about every box of t-shirts that gets shipped from all over the world into the us or into other countries right now you have to have a certificate in every box that has that information of where it was manufactured, who manufactured, the blot number, the part number, description, et cetera. Inspected by 47. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you see that stuff. So that, that, um, that certificate of compliance actually can be electronic. So Haynes, years ago, came up with this idea of let's eliminate this paper from our supply chain. We launched in conjunction with Haynes something called GetGCC, which is a website that anyone can go to. And you can type in a part number. You might have got a NOAA part number, and it can be a little hard to find. But um, you can actually see the compliance certificate. So Haynes was able to convince the government that, hey, can we just put a piece of tape on every box that says, for compliance documents, visit getgcc.com, and then maybe print that also on our invoices that go along with the shipment. And then we don't have to print out that paper for every box anymore. And they've been using that for a very long time. Well, it turns out a lot of companies really like that idea. So we're exploring some areas where we might be able to bring more companies into that realm using our Salesforce technology. The broad strokes of a lot of this stuff is kind of like the three buckets of like the past, like what's currently happening and then like what happens in the future. And you just think about, you know, 50 years ago, all of this stuff was just done pen and paper, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like there's limited computing power but with obviously the rise of the internet and technology and things like that, that you could set up a website that allows you to do that. Now you have things like AI and machine learning that you have massive amounts of data that you can input. Um, I'm curious, how does technology shape all of this today? Like where where's the market at? Like where's the industry, these industries at in terms of how they can use technology? And then where where do you think it's gonna go? That's the second part. So so here's a perspective on that. When you think about kind of what, what Matt was articulating, right? That with the transparency that's required in order to get to market. When you think about the scale and speed that today's corporations are operating at, right? So it's it's not just one hoodie, right? It's it's 1.5 million SKUs or shopkeeping units, right? Items. And if you think about the amount of information that's required just to bring that product into a single market, but I might be actually selling into 150 markets globally. So now you're talking about information on a scale that goes beyond what humans can do unaided. This is really the problems that software solves, right? How do you, how do you automate those information exchanges? How do you automate the compliance verification in order to be able to sell that product into a given market? And how do I speed the process so that I get through customs quickly, right? Because for some of these products, they have shelf lives, right? They're perishable, whether it's because uh, the fashion might, might change <laughs> in two weeks or because the product itself might perish. So speed is of, of the essence. And so being able to get that information, the right information at the right time is critical. The other piece that I think when you think about kind of a digital supply chain and the notion of transparency, the owner of that product, right, that the, the producer of that hoodie, I don't necessarily want all of my supply chain partners to know everything about that product. Yeah. So it's not mm -hmm. just it's not just 100% transparency. It's something that we like to think about as active transparency. I enable you to have the type of information that you need when you need it, and I, I'm kind of the, the controller of that. I think that that's the critical part, right? Because I think, you know, a lot of the technology leaders that listen to the show would be sitting there thinking like, 
isn't this potentially the worst thing that could happen if <laughs> if all of our transactions are happening on the blockchain and that all of our con- competitors can see everything that we're doing? Wouldn't that be the absolute worst thing? So how is how do you kind of like that? I, I want to talk more about the active transparency. What are the things that you think will be necessary to be on the blockchain versus things that people need to keep right, proprietary? That's a really good question. I think um, you really need to have a data model that is simplified for what you de- deem is is external and what you deem is internal, right? And the, the biggest challenge that we've had over the last year because of kind of all the early FUD about blockchain and crypto and hacking and you know all that kind of stuff was um, was that um, if a company puts stuff on blockchain, then everyone can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and so we've had to fight some of that fud. We we absolutely believe that there's a there's a great place in the in enterprise software for permissioned, controlled access um, application of blockchain technology. We're definitely not the whole like you know one long chain with every piece of data open to all, free for all. We just don't. We don't believe that that's applicable to business. So that's something we've been fighting to, to you know, um, educate uh, our customer base on. Well, and I think that that's really, I mean, we talked on this show about, you know, use cases for, for enterprise blockchain. And like, at the end of the day, if it is happening and you can track it with an extreme amount of scrutiny, like every leader wants to know the actual truth of what's going on, right? Like, there's no, you know, there's no bad news. There's just like what is actually happening, right? So I think that a lot of leaders, especially, you know, technology or really any leader, because you have technology and everything now, it's like you need to know what's happening regardless. Like if you're having, you know, X amount of product SKUs and one of them continuously comes up that, um, you know, it, it has like safety violations or something like that, you absolutely have to know that. Now, do you need to be broadcasting that to the world? That's another, that's another thing. And I think that once, once that piece is figured out of how do you keep it internal on something that, you know, inherently is meant to, in some use cases, not be, not be external mm-hmm. um, or not be privatized, then I think that that's really what I think a lot of technology leaders are looking at. Like, what are those use cases? Have you seen any of those? There are definitely some use cases, some business problems to solve in supply chain where broadcasting verifiable information or verified information are critical. So think about a product recall, right? Whether it's a safety issue or a, or just a quality issue, you want to be able to have those products removed from the shelf before they're sold as quickly as possible. Today, that process is kind of um, a series of kind of broken chains. And so it makes it slow and inefficient. If you could simply broadcast that instantly, globally, right? And everybody could trust that's the source of that information, that would actually be a huge value to, to everyone, right? It could potentially save lives. So um, when you think about kind of that type of business problem to solve and using blockchain and the supply chain for that, that's that's huge. Yeah, we really like that use case, actually. It's interesting. Companies, a lot of retailers really are who are ultimately held responsible for getting the stuff off the shelf, right? The supplier of, of peanut butter or romaine lettuce, as we remember the romaine apocalypse back in November, yeah. right? You couldn't get a Caesar salad to save your life around Thanksgiving. When that happened, you know, the retailers are pretty good about um, having systems in place to get the stuff off the shelf, but not all of them are really great about contacting the consumers that actually bought that stuff. Yeah, how would you? Well, let me tell you, there's a couple of them that do it really well. I'm a member of Costco. Mm -hmm. Costco knows everything I buy. Costco has a really great system for tracking everything I buy. And when they know that something went to a specific Costco warehouse store, and that I bought it and that they, that thing's being recalled, they can run a list and they can notify me. Another company that does that very well is Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's has loyalty. As long as I'm using my loyalty thing, uh, I can track that. Now, what I'd like to see in the future, because we're all basically going cashless now, right? We've either using our phone for payment or whatever, but that's all tied to a credit card generally. Yeah. And credit card companies now more and more have the ability to capture what we call level three data. Level one data is I bought something on this date for this much at this vendor. Level two data is I bought something at this store on this date and the price was this and the tax was this. And then level three data is I bought five things. Here are their part numbers. Here's how much each one of them costs. Here's how many of each one I bought. It's basically like an invoice that actually is being held by your credit card company, by Visa, MasterCard, American Express. 
And so I would love to see a time when we could tap into that, right? Because if I know my name is Matt Cromar and I know that I use my credit card at the store, I actually know if that product's being recalled somewhere, somehow that data is out there. And if I could use that without actually getting my credit card number, <laughs> right? But use that in a safe way, maybe blockchain, maybe the credit card companies would be interested in passing some of that level three data out to trusted parties like ISICs or others that are part of this, this recall chain um, that could then notify me because I've got that product. So that's a, that's a neat thing that we would like to explore more. Yeah, and I think it boils down to like a lot of different complex problems that are kind of all in the same pieces. You have to be able to communicate with someone. Um, you think about, I got a piece of mail the other day for a recall from, uh, you know, one of the uh, parts on a car. Yep. I was like, man, this is a bummer for the previous resident of this place because <laughs> this isn't my this isn't my car right. and I've never owned this car, right? <laughs> but like, that's the sort of thing. Like, how hard is that company trying to find the person to recall this part, right? Yeah. Nissan still thinks that I own a 2014 Rogue. <laughs> yeah, there I mean, you that go. was three cars ago. Right. But I still get a mailing saying recall on this. Like you guys should know that I, I turned that car in. You should be able to tell who the new owner of that car is based on the VIN number. Right. Using those unique identifiers and then being able to track them down, let them know. And, and I mean, there's all sorts of use cases where like cars is a great one where you're talking about like the most dangerous thing that any human being owns. Right. It's like we should we should have a really clear understanding of like what exactly is going on with these and they have you know obviously you know better than i tons of regulations around that stuff but you think about that at where the you know the last mile problem where the rubber meets the road pardon the pun here is that if they can't get a hold of you then that's a pretty big issue what do you think is the distant future uh not too distant but distant future the five-year ten-year time horizon for how blockchain plays into uh, supply chain? I would say that the use case that I talked about really being being able to be subscribed in some way, shape or form to the products that I own, that I can find out information about them in the future, right? So when something happens to those products, maybe I bought something five years ago and it's been recalled, you know, I, I would like to be able to know that and, and get that information. Um, um, passed on to me right? yeah i mean so. i think about warranties all the time like i i just bought um the uh the pixel book that you're looking at in front of you and you know my girlfriend's holding the like warranty like do we need to keep this and i was like i don't know like do you need to physically keep the warranty like this is one of those things like i don't even know anymore but that's another one of those use cases like i don't want to keep anything paper anywhere in my life so like wouldn't it be nice to just know that this warranty is you know, on the blockchain and that we have a, you know, transaction history with Google that tells me exactly where that is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And for companies, it's interesting. So um, I might sell a product and then there's a, someone gets injured with that product. I know recently there was these Fisher price um, baby carriers, right. That were recalled and there was a lot of back and forth between, well, they're safe. No, aren't they safe? Well, how many kids have died from them rolling over? Right. <laughs> oh yeah. The little rockers. Right. And so, um, did Fisher Price have the conformance certificates and the safety inspection forms from the ones that were sold 10 years ago? I think that there's probably a deep, dark part of the basement and HQ in a moldy old box that that certificate was there. Oh, absolutely. But if yeah. they can't produce it. Yeah, know, that, I mean, that's, that's a great point is like, does it matter if you have it or not? If you have the receipt, it's like, does it matter if you have your REI receipt if you can't produce it, right? Right, right. Um, but, but to your point earlier, it's like, you know, when you're working directly with, whether it's, you know, REI or Trader Joe's or whatever it is, REI, I know what's going on because you're a, a member or whatever, or Costco. But when you buy it at CVS, mm. when you buy, you know, your St. Ives face wash at CVS, it's like, then you're talking about something that's, now you're two levels removed from the brand. Does the brand know that you bought the thing? Yeah. Right. Brand would love to know. They would definitely love to know. They would love to know. And I've had this conversation with customers, like how far are you willing to go? Do you want to expose to your supply chain? Who's buying your products? And a lot of the big retailers are very concerned about disintermediation, right? They see the potential that if their suppliers start to get a relationship with you and me who buy the actual product, then there's a potential that that retailer isn't needed anymore. 
And so and fear is a great motivator for buying software. You see the rise to direct to consumer. Right. There's a reason for it. It's like if you control the entire go to market strategy for your business, if you can figure it out, there's a lot of benefits there. And I think that ultimately, you know, those companies, those we had uh, the CTO, Kathy Polinsky of Stitch Fix on here and uh, on the show, and she is wired in, you know, she knows exactly what's going on with every single product interaction for Stitch Fix. They know their entire supply chain, like they have that stuff locked down. And it's one of those examples, like what an advantageous position to be in as the chief technologist of a company, right? If you control all of that, if there's, you have 100% insight into your supply chain, like, boy, that's a great place to be. So direct to consumer is kind of where you see those traditional manufacturers evolving to. On the flip side, you see those traditional retailers evolving towards private label. Yeah. Right. So they be, they now look more like that manufacturer. The bottom line is though, that both of them are driving towards transparency. Right? Yeah. It's a key. Yeah. It's a great point. And I think that, you know, as this, like the only, you know, certainty I feel like around all of this is that there's going to be more transparency in the, in the future. And that the way that the consumer gets to opt in and out of that is going to be a huge point of contention because do I want St. Ives to know that I'm using the face wash? Like for me, like, yeah, that'd be great. Like you guys just want to send it to me every six months. Like that'd be awesome. Uh, if you're listening, you can send it to me right now. But it also gets to the to the other side of this, which is like, what is permission and and how much permission are we giving as consumers? That's it's going to be it's already a huge point of contention. It's going to continue to grow. Yeah. Well, I think no matter what, part of where the answer lies is probably on our phones because the way that we're going to interact and either yay or nay to those, you know, subscribing to a product or something right now, it's my thumbprint on my phone to verify with the 10, it's the face. Maybe in the future, it'll be a smile. Right. I smile if I want to be opted in. I frown <laughs> if I don't. Right. It'll be very interesting to see how that evolves. But I think the key to it does lie in that and the device that now we're all as ubiquitous. We all carry. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about building mobile apps all the time because of our amazing sponsor, Salesforce platform and how easy it is to build mobile apps. But I think it's an important point here that mobile apps and making a mobile experience for your user is more important than ever before. Uh, for your customer, that customer experience. We have every single CIO, CTO, CDO that comes on the show talks about customer experience, right? Like that was not a piece of the CIO's job 15 years ago, right? And it is essential, no matter if you're B2B or B2C, that part of that is mobile. If you can trust and you can verify on your mobile device, like wherever you are in real time, like that is extremely powerful. Yeah, and we actually, going back onto Elliot's um bringing up the recall application. So we've got this recall app um, that we've we've moved from our old platform over to Salesforce. And part of that process is the the retailer gets the notification, okay, the romaine lettuce is bad, you got got to get rid of it. And um, how do you prove that you got rid of it, right? So one of the ideas we have is because we run on the Salesforce platform, we automatically, our applications automatically enabled on their mobile app. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. So certain pieces of our app um, can be uh, automatically just log into your mobile app and bang, there's the request coming saying, hey, I need you to complete this workflow. Tell me if this stuff is off the shelf. Right. So you fill in some fields, whatever. Snap a picture of the stuff in the garbage can. Upload that picture and it's automatically flows back. That's Whoa. the proof. Right. That's so, really cool. So that's the kind of where we're going to go in terms of, you know, verifying the proof um, that uh, that these things have happened. Right? So who so in that example, so romaine lettuce, you know, there's some type of whatever it was contagion, bacteria, whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, the romaine is compromised. You have every store that carries this is going to have to recall it. So that you're saying like the individual store, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So I'm just tracking with you. So if you think about that foodborne pathogen, right, is on, on the product. So today, kind of kind of with outside of ISIX, what would happen is we don't know exactly which, which shipments, which lots. So the issue would be just, hey, the, the recall notification would be get rid of all the romaine, right? Just dump it all. But if you knew that it was actually, oh, it was... It was these products that were harvested on these dates, mm-hmm. which made their way into these lot numbers, which were shipped to these endpoints. You could actually have a much more 
focused recall, which would actually save both time and money, which is valuable. Yeah, yeah no kidding. We actually, um, so in, in November when that happened, um, it was all on November 20th, and I looked at one of our customers' recall activity, and it started with one recall for a specific Romaine product, then it was another one, another one. By the end of the day, there was 15 separate recalls. And the last one was like, just find anything in the store that has romaine in it and throw it away. Wow. Okay. So what happened was 10 days, that was like the romaine apocalypse, like nationwide the FDA came out and said, get rid of all your romaine everywhere because we don't know where this is coming from. 10 days later, they found out it was one small farm in central California that had produced that romaine millions and millions and millions of dollars and you know unsatisfied romaine uh caesar salad eaters uh, <laughs> later we find out that that's where the stuff come from so we'd love to be able to help and there are some technologies out there where people are are trying to work on this um and there's some great suppliers out there that do this very well i can tell you exactly what that they've test because those those just like the t-shirt or the sweatshirt hoodie example i gave you for food it's the same thing you got to pull a couple of pieces out of every batch of romaine from a certain part of a farm that's been harvested. You've got to test it for pathogens. You've got to test it for quality. And you've got to then certify that batch, right? Um, so, so that same stuff happens in in the food air arena as well. So we think um, we think that this is a great area to apply technology to basically improve your speed to data, right? Yeah. Speed to data is speed to revenue. Well, and I think there's so much importance around specifically with food where waste is i mean the amount of waste for for food is like off the charts especially in the u.s you're talking about not only like you know saving millions of dollars to the business and to the consumer but also like feeding people yeah feeding <laughs> feeding people and uh and being a good steward of resources and things like that which you know, to your point, it's like, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater because just because we didn't have the technology to track it is pretty unacceptable in like this day and age. And like people need to be realized that you can use technology to solve those problems rather than just saying like, hey, we're just going to, you know, take out the broom and like sweep it, sweep it clean. Like that's that's not a viable solution anymore. So ISICS is a company of purpose and we're a one percent pledge company. One of the areas. So Fantastic. Right. Congratulations. One of the places that we've been thinking about uh, working with some partners to explore is around food bank. Yep. And so how do you actually try to make that process more efficient to reduce the amount of waste and help perishable foods get to kind of places of need? The And with all of these new things like cropping up, like um, full harvest, who I think we had on, or we have coming up on, uh, on another one of our shows on Mission Daily, but all sorts of of different types of ways of looking at this problem. But at the end of the day, if you don't have the tracking mechanisms to figure out when something goes wrong, because the government will get involved. And then it's like, at that point in time, if you don't have the answers for them, it's like, that's, that's where you're going to get some, you know, catastrophic. That's when you basically are like, where do I send the check? Cause you know, you goofed and it can be very expensive. And, and one of the things that we've, we, we work primarily with the quality and safety and compliance departments at many of our customers. And, and I think our customers elevate those positions to a very good spotlight and area of responsibility within the company. There are a lot of companies out there that kind of look at it and say, well, we haven't had a claim in a long time or we haven't been sued yet. So do we really want to spend all this money on all these tracking programs and tracing programs to really test this stuff? Like how much is it really going to cost us? Now, I would hope that that's not the case. But anecdotally, I've heard that, that that's the kind of the business decisions that some companies make is like the insurance policy costs less than the people you need to run oh, a yeah. really good quality and compliance department. Yeah. Right? There's what is this like Aaron Brockovich? Like, the, yeah. it's like that same thing, right? Where yeah. they do that calculation Calculated risk. OK, but that's the sort of when you talk about transparency and trust, like you talk about that stuff, like all of that is coming out. And it's yeah. like the downside is that you're a terrible human being and that you're going to get a movie made about you. Yeah. So it's like, like go watch Chernobyl, yeah. like go yeah, watch yeah. like, you know, and I like, there's a lot of stuff out there that I think that people are talking to their CFO uh, about X, Y, or Z. Um, not to bait that CFO is the bad person here, but, <laughs> but I just mean like, you know, how do we, how do we increase cost savings? Like that's not growth mindset and that's not helping, helping humanity. Here. Going back to what Elliot said, I mean, the, the new generation just demands it. 
They just won't buy your stuff. So you'll start to notice if you're not transparent pretty quickly when your stuff is bought over someone who leads with their transparency. And that's where we really are starting to shine is helping the companies understand that mindset and then be like, look, we can help you put all this data together in a very logical way so you can not only make the claim, but you can prove it, right? And and we, we, we've been kicking around this term in the company for a long time. We call it trust like love, hmm. right? And really the first part of the relationship is building that trust, right? You can't really like someone unless you trust them, right? So we build that trust first, then you begin to like us, and then you start to love us, right? And you can't have the the second two without the first one. So that's been kind of a mantra that our CEO kind of came up with, and I love it. Um, so uh, we, we- I just like it, yeah. but I, I'm working in my you, way to love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. You can stick with like for a while. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> you know, I would add there, the final piece on that is, you know, when it comes to the marketing aspect of some of this stuff is what you can and can't say and like what is organic or not organic or those sort of things. Like as certain things become, you know, farm to table, sustainably sourced, wild caught, all of those things, all of those buzzwords that have deep meaning and impact for like our earth and that consumers really care about when you can actually track if something actually is wild caught, when you can track if something is sustainably uh, farmed, like when you can track if something's actually organic, like that is a massive, massive opportunity because consumers really care about it. You could charge a premium. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not just that people will look for that stuff and say, oh, I'll buy that so you sell more, but you can actually charge more for your products because you're making those claims. Locally sourced, all that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Plastics reduction is a huge topic in supply chain these days. And, and again, the Gen Z shopper, they're going to buy from the company that has that demonstrates values, can demonstrate the values are aligned with the things that are important to us. So, And I think, you know, this is anecdotal, but I think that what we've seen is that people are like, oh, you know, millennials and Gen Z aren't brand loyal. It's like, it's actually the total opposite. It's like, they are brand loyal because like human beings are brand loyal. That's like what we do. You know, we find something we like and we stick with it. And I think that what they're not brand loyal to is stuff that they never had a connection with. Right. right. It's like, right. you know, I grew up eating a certain type of peanut butter and it's like my girlfriend likes a different type of peanut butter. Guess what we have in the house. Right. <laughs> Two you know? types of peanut butter. <laughs> or we have oh, one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and it's, you know, organic peanut butter or whatever it is. Yeah. But uh, and it's delightful. But I think that those sort of things like, you know, better options come available and then you're going to go with those. And I think that that's the thing that, you know, if you're leveraging technology, to be able to give the consumer what they want and you have more data, like, you know, you're going to, you're going to win in the long run. Uh, okay. So I want to talk a little bit about just the ISIX platform and, you know, it's been around for gosh, almost 15 years. Right. Mm -hmm. So obviously it has changed over the years, but, um, you know, what does it look like now? What are, what are some of those designs like, and how does that support the type of complexity that your customers are dealing with? Sure. It's a really good question. So we started out like a, like a, we had talked about about 15 years ago. We built our original application on .NET, um, and we had the idea of the business network in mind, but really didn't execute on that. I think what we ended up with was a bunch of different versions of the same application based on the customer's requirements. When we moved to Salesforce, we made a decision to move to Salesforce about um, three years ago, and we decided that we really wanted to transform that into a, a real SaaS pl platform where it's much more about configuration than it is about customization, right? So we can take a product test application, build a bunch of stuff in there based on how a bunch of different companies do their product testing programs and then have options for configuring that as opposed to going and coding specifically for the way Hanes does it versus the way Walmart does it, et cetera. So that was some of the, the, the way we've, we've retooled as we've transitioned to this new SaaS platform on, on, on the fourth platform. We really boiled it down into two key objects that we think are the most important pieces of, of this puzzle. One is, is data and information stored about products, products that you buy, that you sell, um, that you manufacture, et cetera. So product is one of the key attributes or key objects that we store information on. The second piece is about um, trading partners. So trading partners could be customers. They could be people that I buy it from, um, suppliers to me. Trading partners could also be those labs, those independent third parties that verify for me um, whether my products are good or not. 
So those those trading partners and those products. And then what we do is create relationships between the two. And that actually is what we've learned is the best way to kind of model out this supply chain and start to build applications using our network, using the interactions between the different parties on top of that. So that's kind of where we got to now in terms of our design. And in terms of how are we kind of attacking some of these big problems with our customers? In my 25 years or so of experience in supply chain, I've learned what's what I call the golden rule of supply chain. He with the gold rules. <laughs> so I think that's just the golden rule. It's the gold, yeah. what, what that means in supply chain is that change, real change in supply chain in terms of technology advancement can't be achieved by, let's say, a big a supplier. Like if I sell romaine lettuce, right? Or if I sell peanut butter, I can't go to the people that buy it from me and be like, hey, we're going to do all this electronically now, right? Because it's just me and them, right? Really what you need is what we call the big Bs, the big buyers to drive this change and drive this innovation. And it worked with us very well at Ariba over building a network of over three and a half million suppliers worldwide. We do about $3 trillion. We, I say we still, because I feel like I'm married to that company, but over $3 trillion in commerce goes over that Ariba network platform today. And so if you translate that over to what we're trying to do at I6, we're trying to make some big moves and we're trying to use our big customers and their stick and maybe their carrot to go and either feed or hit the suppliers over the head to initiate some of this change. So I think that you need to have, in order to to really affect change, you have to have big companies behind you. Walmart's been pretty successful working with Food Trust, which is the food traceability blockchain. They've had some some successes and some challenges there. Um, and, um, And we think that we can have some successes around traceability uh, as well as, um, you know, proof, proof points and trust with the government around um, compliance, um, compliance management. So that's kind of our, our mantra, right, is use your customers, you know, they're kind of all standing behind you when you're going to talk to someone to affect some change. Um, it's kind of like your big brother will beat you up if yeah. you don't do what I say. <laughs> yeah, so the one thing I just uh, add to that is if you think about kind of, so you have that, that basic DNA, I have two trading partners and the products that pass between them. Those products could be simple, right? Finished products, but they also could be complex, right? Products inside products. Uh, explode them into their individual components, the, the, the bomb, bill of materials or the ingredients. But one of the problems you have to solve in order to generate that transparency is that information typically will live in different places. So we have one customer that has 43 ERP systems. That's just unbelievable. Isn't it? And so a single product might be called something different in 18 of them. And so today, a lot of times the way those organizations uh, compensate is essentially manually move information between those systems. Um, So if one of the pieces then is to create those core relationships, all the attributes that sit around them, and then when I have that kind of one view of a product and you call it this thing and I call it this thing, but we're both talking about the same thing, once I have that as a basis, now I can automate the exchange or communication around it. So that's that's a key. Yeah. That's yeah. an absolute My key. part number is not your part number. If I buy something from you, I have a part number ABC123. Yours is XYZ987, you know, right? Yeah, it's so, like if, if I send an invoice to someone, it's like invoice number whatever for mission, but it's invoice number right. whatever. So as a the, supplier, I got to store, every, I got my part number for, you know, a widget, but every customer of mine that buys it from me sends me a purchase order with their part number for that widget. So I got to store all those things. And then I got to make sure in every interaction and in every communication where I'm relaying information about the products that I sell to them, that we both agree upon which number we're going to use. Right. And there's been some organizations that have been pretty successful in, in, in building out these kind of universal product identifiers, things like UPC codes, maybe GTINs, which is through GS1, um, which is a, a global standards organization. Um, but still not everyone is on the same page at all. And so what we did with this, trading partner and product object model that we've simplified, we're actually able to associate not just those universal IDs that may exist, but the non-universal IDs. So your part number and my part number in our system, we have them both, right? And we may have others as well from the other 20 or 30 ERP systems that we have. So we've unified that in our system to make sure that we properly capture all the required documentation about these products. And that's where, you know, you see an obvious use case for blockchain mm-hmm. where it's like, if there's one 
single source of truth for what you know Laura Scudder's peanut butter mm-hmm. uh, you know is, then you have an ability for everyone to reference that yeah. one thing. Or you put all four of them on the blockchain, and then each party can decipher which one they care about. Right? Yeah. So. If we're not going to get to a universal world, which, you know, it's like, when's the U.S. going to switch to the metric system? Yeah, right? yeah, Don't right. hold your breath. Right. So is everyone going to agree on let's call this product this? No. But isn't that the funny thing about blockchain is like now at this point in time, it won't matter anymore. You can have whatever blockchain system and it's like it just takes both of them and it mm-hmm. puts it into one thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah that That's the exciting part. And, and, you know, final question on blockchain here. Um, as it relates to supply chain. If you're one of the CIOs or CTOs, CDOs, that's sitting around thinking like, we punted blockchain conversations for our product for, you know, 2019. But in 2020, we're starting to look at it. Mm. Uh, how the heck do we get started? What what would be your, your recommendation there? Yeah. I would figure out a way to start with something simple, something that builds trust. Frankly, I think that's the, it's probably one of the easiest places to start. And it's the one that's going to give you the best payback. If you can figure out some way to use blockchain to enhance your trust score, if there is one, then I think that's a a great place to start. You know, customers, they don't come to us and say, I want a blockchain solution. They come to us with a business problem. And then we go and look and figure out the best way to do that. And sometimes blockchain can help with that. We're starting to introduce that now that we have the tools to do it with Salesforce, you know, announcing a couple of weeks ago their blockchain solution. We've been a design partner since December. But uh, now that we have that toolkit kind of with our platform, um, we can find out ways to, to easily do that. We had already had a pilot on our own. That's kind of one of the reasons why they were tapping us to help out because we'd already done something around recall just internally in our labs. But now that we've got a commercialized, you know, commercial version that, that's, you know, um, got Salesforce standing behind it, we think we can we can do a lot more. Yeah, and I'd tell that uh, that CIO, CDO, go talk to your general counsel, go talk to the folks in your organization that are uh, in charge of sustainability. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's, when you think about trust, you need to think about sustainability and being transparent about your impact on the world. Yeah, I mean, I would just, you know, every day my LinkedIn feed is just full of procure with purpose and sustainability and plastic everywhere and all this stuff. It's at the top of mind. And we can help with that. Certainly around plastics, we've got a new initiative we're working on around plastics that we think is going to have major impact and being able to really help companies understand what's their plastic footprint yeah, and then start to track it and then start to eliminate it. And so that I don't, it doesn't take me like a pair of industrial grade, like, like shears to cut through the plastic on like a thing that's like a microchip like give me a freaking great craziness um all right let's get into some lightning round questions fast and easy rapid fire these questions as always are fast and easy just like lightning platform from salesforce you can go to salesforce.com slash build mobile apps to learn more how you can build apps faster and easier on lightning platform okay i'll ask you the same question, and then you can both answer in succession. Uh, what app are you using on your phone that is most fun? Google Maps. Expensify. Oh, man. <laughs> you guys need to have more fun. Uh, what is your favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Joe Rogan. Wired Magazine. Wired? We just had, they had a great cover the other day. Somewhere sitting around the office here. Um what do you do for fun? Sailing. Painting. Ooh, what do you, I like painting as well. Oh, I like the uh, the California painters. So Diebenkorn, Thibodeau, um, Staprins. Awesome, awesome folks. What is your best advice for first time? We'll say technology executive. I would say um, figure out what your light bulb to log in is. And what I mean by that is as a product guy, you know, when you have an idea for something that's going to go into your piece of software, figure out as soon as you can how long it takes you to take that idea all the way through building it, coding it, getting ready for it, letting your customers know about it, and then ultimately releasing it and then getting your customers to adopt it and start using it. Because that's a really important metric to understand, um, you know, how how companies will, will benefit from your solutions. And uh, it's a good thing to tell your investors too. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it's all about clarity. 
What's the business problem you're trying to solve? Don't get distracted. Awesome. Gents, this has been a, this has just been a, a great, great uh, early afternoon here. Thanks so much for coming by, stopping by in studio. Any, uh, any final thoughts, any things to plug? Uh, well, certainly um, we'd love to plug I6, uh, safety, compliance, supply chain, all good things. We're just, as they say in the Silicon Valley, we're trying to make the world a better place. Uh, and actually, we're just trying to help people prove that they're doing so. Protect, protecting your consumers, protecting your brand at the same time. Awesome. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thank Thanks you. Again. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.